Open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3, look at verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Isn't that a good verse? And what we see is we see an order. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. So the peace of God comes before genuine thankfulness. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word today and the preaching. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that we'll have a better understanding of what it means to be grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, today we live in a time where atheism is really coming to blossom in the Western world. Do you all recognize that? That that there's a strong movement, whether it's on television, the comedians, um, there's a real move to atheism. Now, there may be an atheist in the room today, and if you are, man, I'm glad that you're here. This is where you need to be. I hope that you are welcomed here, and we're glad that you're here. But the majority of the people in the room are not atheists. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. We believe that He died for our sins and that He rose again from the third day, and rose again the third day, proving that He was, is, and always will be God. And that's what we believe. And that's what all, everyone who would call themselves a Bible-believing Christian, that's who we are and that is what we believe. And so while we are not listening to the atheists, I do believe that we have been influenced by secular culture and that our thinking, we, begun, we begin thinking in the same categories that the world would think in. It's really important that we understand this, how much we are affected by the, the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age. And so I want to share some things with you today. Some of my favorite thinkers, I've gotten some information from them. This is the atheist at Thanksgiving. Uh, this is a man, and I, I don't have his name here, Aronson. And he is a college professor. He's an atheist. And he's writing about how an atheist a thinking atheist should look at the world. And he says this, living without God today means facing a life and facing life and death as no generation before us has done. And so what this is, this is an atheist philosopher trying to get us to understand the concepts of life and death and how to think about them. All right? It entails live, giving meaning to our lives not only in the absence of a supreme being, but now without the forces and trends that gave hope to the past several generations of secularists. We who live after progress, after Marxism, and after the Holocaust have stopped believing that the world is being transformed by reason and democracy. The, the, the thing that pervades these, the, the young atheists, the thought that pervades this generation is one of hopelessness. There's no meaning in life. There's no purpose. And all of the progress, all of the utopians, H.G. Wells and all of these others that, that, that thought that this new age of reason and socialism was going to cause progress in the world and now the world was going to overcome war and famine and disease and everyone's just going to get better. Well, obviously, that has not happened. Would you all agree with that? That has not happened. Now, I've got to say this. Praise God for the scientific discoveries. Praise God for the advances in medicine and in science. I really enjoy my iPhone. 
I've got the poster size iPhone. I've got these little hands I can hardly get around my iPhone. Hello? But I really enjoy having the technology. I'm thankful for it. And there has been intellectual progress. Would you all agree with that? And we're thankful for that. I'm thankful that diseases that were fatal can now be healed. I'm thankful for vaccines. I'm, I'm thankful for medicine and for knowledge and for science. I'm thankful for all of those things. But it's very interesting, the hopelessness that all of that has brought to the atheist. He said this, By the beginning of the 21st century, the modern faith that human life is heading in a positive direction has been undone, giving way to the earlier religious faith it replaced or to no faith at all. Alone as never before in a universe scientifically better understood than ever, we find little in its almost infinite vastness to guide us toward what our lives mean or how we should live them. It's very interesting. There is a difference between Henry Ford and the internal combustion engine. See, we can understand how an engine works, but not why there is an engine in the first place. You see, these scientists can understand how the world works. And we as Christians, we're not unscientific. We believe in the laws of physics and and, you know, we have engineers in the room here who work with the natural laws every day. We believe in those. As a matter of fact, we believe in them more than most of the atheists do because we believe in the law of entropy, that everything tends from order to disorder, not that we are evolving to a higher state. And what's interesting is the non-scientific atheists, those that would be in the philosophical realm, are seeing the truth of that. And the end of it is despair, hopelessness. And that's where Aronson is. He said this, To answer these questions anew, agnostics, and agnostic is a person who just doesn't know whether there's a God or not. They just don't know. Atheists are people who positively know there is no God. They're affirming a negative, which of course is a logical fallacy. But anyway, the atheists and secularists, Secularists are people who just want to have a life without God, without any concept of the supernatural. But I want to ask you this. How does science explain what a baby's smile does to your soul? Uh, we watched, Laura and I, yesterday morning, I had television on, and there was a commercial for the Shriners Hospital. How many of you have seen those commercials? I can't take it, man. I'm watching these kids, and, and these kids are celebrating what the, what the Shriners had done. And, and it, it, they're, they're just precious. How do you explain that? How does science explain that? It can't. It can't. And that's the struggle. To answer these questions anew, agnostics, atheists, and secularists must absorb the experience of the 20th century and the issues of the 21st. We must face today's concerns about forces beyond our control and our own responsibility shape a satisfying way of living in relation to what we can know and what we cannot know, affirm a secular basis for morality. What is the secular basis for morality? You see, if there's a moral law, then there must also be a moral lawgiver. If society establishes the moral code, then what if society decides that all dark-haired people should be killed? Because... Really, those of us with light hair, we are much better. Now, while that's obviously true, we can't kill you people. 
What if society decided that? Has that ever happened before? That was the morality of that society. Why was it wrong? You see, if there's a moral law, there must also be a moral lawgiver. And so what this atheist is trying to do is he's trying to come up with a morality based on secularism. And so what would the basis of that morality be? He doesn't ever answer. He says this, we must affirm a secular basis for morality, even while, especially in the United States, religion is being trumpeted as essential to living ethically, formulate new ways of coming to terms with death, and explore what hope can mean after the collapse of enlightenment anticipations. You know, the enlightenment was, let's build a completely secular society. And, you know, the immediate result of the enlightenment was the French Revolution. All right? And that was horrible. It was horrible. None of us would have wanted to live under the French Revolution. And we have seen the natural outworking of that. So what is his conclusion? Here's the atheist's problem at Thanksgiving. So this is the same guy, Aronson. He said, hiking through a nearby woods on a late summer day recently, I followed the turning path and suddenly saw a pristine lake, then walked down a hill to its edge as birds chirped and darted about, stopping at a clearing to register the warmth of the sun against my face. Doesn't that sound nice? We could use a little bit of that right now. Feelings welled up. Physical pleasure. Delight in the sounds and sights. Gladness to be out here on this day but something else as well, curious and less distinct. A vague feeling, more like gratitude than anything else, but not towards any being or person I could recognize. Only half-formed, this feeling didn't fit into any easily discernible category, evading my usual lenses and language of perception. So when you have a feeling of gratitude for things beyond your ability, who do you think? This is a big problem for an atheist. Thank who? Thank who? His conclusion. Feelings of dependence and of belonging are appropriate attitudes of response by the secular person. And this is, he argues, from the article I got this from. So are feelings of reverence and awe. So he has this feeling of reverence and awe. Reverence toward what and whom? Very interesting. Look at his conclusion. None of these need be vague or fuzzy if their worldly sources are not ignored and they are not projected beyond our universe. They become specific modes of living and experiencing our actual situation. Now, what happens here is he says that later on in the article that what we need to thank is the sun and the earth and the universe. We need to be thankful and grateful and stand in awe of our universe. So the universe made itself. The sun made itself. What's so interesting with all of our advancement, we have devolved back into paganism. So what are these people running around in grass skirts, dancing around and killing somebody to worship the sun god? It's interesting, isn't it? What did the Bible say? There's nothing new 
under the sun. It's almost like God knew what was going to happen. It is so interesting when we have a biblical worldview, we can understand what's going on. Not only can we understand the world that we live in and the struggles that we face, not only do we have answers for that, but we understand where Aronson is coming from. When you realize there is something beyond me that I must worship, what they end up worshiping is the earth. Look at Romans chapter 1. Keep it, put a marker there at Colossians. But go to Romans chapter 1. And look at verse 19. Look at verse 20. For the invisible things of Him, that's God, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God... They glorified Him not as God. Let's worship the sun. Let's worship the earth. But became vain in their imaginations. Now, that word vain, that means empty. That means empty. So when you're worshiping the sun, you're worshiping nothing. That's what vanity is. Okay? They became vain. How many of you know people that you really believe they think about nothing? Right? So you ladies, when your husband is thoughtless, here's what you need to say. You're being vain. You're being vain. Thoughtless thoughtless. Ladies, how many times, has this ever happened to you? That your husband was being thoughtless? Has this ever happened? So has it? Now, we got some great guys in here and little ladies voted. You ladies need to know lying's a sin. Now, <laughs> but look at what it says in verse 21 again, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were, what's that word? Isn't that interesting? What does an atheist do at Thanksgiving? I read one article, and it was talking about the difference in cultures and how Southern culture understands this concept better because they say Thanksgiving. Anybody from the South? Isn't that the way they say it? Thanksgiving. And that, that's, the, that's where the emphasis is supposed to be. It's supposed to be on thanks. And here, what we understand is when people begin worshiping everything except God, they're vain in their imaginations and they are not thankful. And look at what the Bible says. Right after that, and neither were thankful, the beginning of the middle of verse 21, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Isn't that the world that we live in? They're worshiping the creation. They're rejecting the creator. And now they're looking to find a morality. The world, the world is devolving into chaos. Do you all recognize that? 
It is devolving into chaos. And the more God is removed from the culture, the more wicked and vile men's hearts become to where they walk into a hotel and just shoot people. What is that? That's godlessness. And when we remove, you say, no, no, wait a minute. They worship God. No, no. They worship a God of their own making. They don't worship the God that is. It's very important that we get that distinction. And so whether it is pagan religious society or pagan secular society, the more people reject the God of creation, the worse the world gets. And now we're searching for some kind of morality. What are the rules? What are the rules? Albert Moeller is president of Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary. He said this, talking about Aronson's comments. In the end, he, Aronson, proposes that non-theists, that's anyone other than a person who believes in the one true God, should imagine their own, quote, map of dependence that would trace obligation and meaning to give thanks is to honor this. So the idea is that when we look at this amazing world, there is a sense of obligation that comes over us. We want to thank someone. Who do we thank? Well, what he comes to his conclusion is that we have an obligation to the earth. We have an obligation to the sun. Os Guinness said this, The worst moment in the world for an atheist is when she is genuinely thankful but has nobody to thank. When your heart bursts with gratitude at the birth of one of your children or grandchildren, or you look at a gorgeous sunset, or you hold your spouse and you are so happy that you cry tears of joy or you have a prayer miraculously answered. Benjamin Franklin said this, To the generous mind, the heaviest debt is that of gratitude when it is not in our power to repay it. It's very interesting. I think that all of us, the, the, the spirit of thanksgiving runs against the temptation that we face as human beings to assert our self-sufficiency. I want you to think about this, especially you guys. So we can talk about the broader world. I'm going to talk about Ewan's. I worked with a girl when I was in Tennessee from La Follette, Tennessee, and she'd always say that, Ewan's, Ewan's. That's the way it came out, Ewan's. I'll say Ewan's because I'm a Yankee. Our culture here in Shelby County, in this area, is one of extreme self-sufficiency, right? We don't want handouts. We don't want to receive them. We don't want to give them. We want to be responsible for our own lives. Clean up your own messes. Come on, am I right? Is that the way that we feel? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have a heart of charity and compassion. If someone genuinely has a need, we want to meet that need. But if it's just some loser looking for a handout, we're out. You know, our understanding is that the reason that some people are poor is because they stink at life. And if they get their lives together, they wouldn't be poor anymore. Right? Preacher, that is very... Hey, you're the ones thinking it, not me. I'm just expressing you. (laughs) here's what happens. Somebody gives you a Christmas gift, and now what do you feel obligated to do? Buy them one. Am I right? And if you ever stop getting gifts from that person, what happens? You don't have to buy them one now. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? 
Somebody comes and helps you at your house. What do you say? Hey, what can I do for you now? Now, honestly, I, I like that. I, I like that, that reciprocity. I like that feeling of responsibility. To whom much is given, to him much is required. And I, I like that. But somewhere in there, we feel like we have the ability to give back in the same way that was given to us. So what do you do? who do you thank for a child? Who do, you, who do you thank for a sunset? Who do you thank for genuine love? Who do you thank for that? That's what Benjamin Franklin was talking about. You see, what happens is we feel the weight of a debt of gratitude that must be paid to someone. For the Christian, we know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. He gives us every good thing. And what's interesting, the Bible says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights, in whom is no variable, is no shadow of turning. Every good thing that comes into the world comes from God the Father. And the Bible says it this way, well, the, the sun shines or the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Right? So, so this atheist, Aronson, who I want nothing bad to happen to, I want him to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. I don't hate this man. I want him to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want him to understand that that weight, that debt of gratitude that he feels is toward a person, not an object. I am so, I love, I love this microphone. You're precious. I'm glad we have a microphone. I was in Scotland, or Ireland, no. England. And, well, you'll understand why in a minute. We were at John Wesley's chapel, okay, where he used to preach. And this Scotsman is giving us a tour. And under Wesley's pulpit was a microphone stand with a microphone. And ever being the smart aleck, I asked the guy, I said, was that John Wesley's microphone? Now, John Wesley lived in the 1700s, okay? So I said, was that John Wesley's microphone? And there's a Scotsman said, nay, Wesley hadn't a microphone. Well, I'm thankful that I have a microphone, but man, that is so much different than how thankful I am for my children. Now, ultimately, God is responsible for the microphone because He established the laws of physics, the laws of science that enabled these things to be broadcast, right? So ultimately, that's God, but I've never gotten weepy over a microphone. I've gotten angry when it doesn't work right, Andy. <laughs> this is a rule. Never mess with the man that controls the microphone back there. But this is what we intrinsically, instinctively know. That gratitude for things that go beyond ourselves and our power to control, that that gratitude is never to an object. It's always to a person. And that's why there's hopelessness in the world because they don't know that person, Jesus Christ. Ravi Zacharias, he said this. This is a book that he wrote on wonder. And he said, that's what I'm talking about. A debt that cannot be repaid, even by the most generous. But though it is a debt, it is the only debt one can owe that give him a sense of fulfillment. A gentle pressure applied to a strained muscle can actually hurt, although it brings relief. Physiotherapists will call that a sweet pain. A debt of gratitude is somewhat like that. 
something that reminds you of your need and someone who is able to meet that need for you. But guys, you know what it's like. Your little girl comes with the doll that's broken, and she brings it up and she says, Daddy, fix it, right? And usually it's because your son tore its head off, <laughs> and you know how to put the head back on, and you put the head back on the doll, and the baby, the, the little girl, thank you, Daddy, and she runs away with her doll, and then you find the son and you beat the pudding out of him. <laughs> It's, 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 this is, this is reality, isn't it? But what about the sick child? You see, when, when, when that child is brought to you as a pastor, I, um, I had a friend, pastor friend call me about two weeks ago and his daughter had a baby and the baby has trisomy 13. That's an extra 13th chromosome. Very rare. I mean, there are less than a 1,000 of these babies born a year in America. And the reason he called me is because Laura and I had a son who was born with trisomy 13. And I can remember when he was born, we had to go to a geneticist. And we, it was in Tennessee, and this geneticist said, listen, listen to this. The geneticist, his name was Riley, our son's name was Riley. And... The geneticist said, Riley was a mistake. Well, if your worldview is a purely secular worldview in an angry world, then that's possible. But I know, we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Riley was a gift from God. God wasn't surprised. He knew exactly what was going on. And so for four and a half months, we loved Riley, and he went home to be with the Lord. And at his funeral, Brother Sexton preached this sermon. Riley was a missionary, and he talked about all the things that Riley taught us. And let me tell you what that taught me personally. Man, i got to tell you, when he died, I, I just put my head in my pillow, and all I could say was, oh, God, oh, God. That's it. That's all that could come out. I was in college. I was going to school full-time and working full-time. He died three weeks before I graduated. And I, I would come home from, from work or come home from school, and I would always go in and see Riley because I had a few minutes at home before I went to work. And I remembered right after I'd gone back to work, I came home, and I walked into the house, and I ran into Riley's room to see him, and I remembered he's gone. I remember our, our, our niece, Sarah. She's probably three. She said to Laura, where's your baby? Where's your baby? What do you do? How do how, I don't know how people live in the world without understanding there is a God. There is an eternity. There is a heaven. And we have a gracious God that said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. How do people live without that? And do you know what I've been able to do since then? I've been able to look to my heavenly Father and say, thank you for Riley. Because I knew some things. I knew, number one, I'm kind of a jerk. And I, I don't, you know, that, that empathy, sometimes it's hard for me to understand what someone else is going through. 
Let me tell you something. Somebody loses a child, I know what they're going through now. Do you know who taught me that? Riley. Do you know who had his hand in it? My wonderful Savior and God, who I trust. I trust Him. Got a note yesterday that little Samuel went home to be with the Lord yesterday. I tried to call Brother Hickam, a preacher friend, and I wasn't able to get a hold of him, but I left him a message. God is real. Heaven is real. There's hope for tomorrow. Ravi Zacharias, let me tell you today why I'm grateful. Today, I am grateful. Give you a few points. Number one. An unexamined sense of self-sufficiency instills in us a subtle but false attitude of entitlement, thus making it difficult for us to accept the sense of vulnerability that is part of true gratitude. I got this. That is the temptation for us to say, I got this. I can handle this. Whether it's the loss of a child, whether it's a, a, a strain in your relationship, whether it's an emotional issue, whatever it is that you're going through in life, or even your eternal destiny, you can say, I've got this. I can handle this on my own. And can I tell you something? You can't. Do you know what humility does? Humility says, thank you, God, for providing me an answer. Thank you, Lord, for giving me hope for tomorrow. There's a vulnerability that's part of that. Number two, ever since the tempter said to Adam and Eve in the garden, you will be like God. Human beings have never given up the temptation to either elevate themselves to the level of God or pull God down to our own level so we can deal with God as equals. Can I tell you something? God is not your equal. He is, the word holy means completely other. God is completely separate from us. But here's the good news. We're not deists who believe that God is completely other and separate from us. We believe that He is holy, but He is also imminent. He is near us. He's with us. The Bible says, though He be not far from any one of us. That's the God that we worship. But I'll tell you what, our mistake is we make God like us. We either try to elevate ourselves up to where we think we're like God, and who did that? Lucifer, right? I will exalt myself. Or we pull God down and we make Him like us. God's not like us. We are always looking for a chance to say to God, I can take it from here. Without a clear sense of how little we are entitled to, we cannot really come to terms with the need for gratitude. Do you know what we deserve? You ever get mad with your situation in life? You ever get mad? You can't find your keys? I had meant to get a list of first world problems. You know? The Starbucks guy didn't get my coffee right. Ruined my whole day. And I love Starbucks, by the way. Now, listen, that is a first world problem, right? Is there a difference between, you know, they, they, put, they didn't put an extra shot in my Americano or I don't have enough food to give my child? First world problems. It's interesting, isn't it? And yet, we as Americans, we complain so much. I'm the one standing by the microwave tapping my foot. That's who we are. You know, I bought the Keurig coffee machine so that my, I don't have to wait for a whole pot to brew. 
And it can always be fresh. Right? First world problems. My pod was stale. I just can't love it. Where's my hut? I just don't know. That's the way that we that's the way that we live. There's something that we need to recognize. It's how little we deserve. How little we are entitled to. And the simple fact of the matter is, here's what we as people deserve. Hell. Because we're sinners. Hell. The judgment and wrath of an almighty and holy God whose law we have defiled. What we deserve is hell. So if you get a flat tire, here's what you're supposed to say. Sure beats hell. Right? Somebody burns your pizza. Sure beats hell. You got to serve in the nursery. Well... We need to recognize how little we actually deserve. An attitude of entitlement is an effective impediment to gratitude. We are impacted, affected by interaction with the world. I deserve it. Remember the old L'Oreal commercial? Because I'm worth it. Right? Remember that? Listen, we need to understand that a sense of entitlement robs us of gratitude. Let me tell you something. I told this to Jacob the other day. I was trying to encourage him. Something had happened. I was trying to encourage him. I said, hey, Jake, life's hard, then you die. I want my son to just have joyful memories of living at home. Is that true? Life is hard, and then you die. That's the world that we live in. There are times when life is just Hard. Is that true? That is the world that we live in. We have to recognize it. And the problem is our, our entitlement. It stops us from being grateful. It stops us from being grateful. Look at, look at back to Colossians chapter 3, and I want to show you something. Colossians 3 and verse 15. I like the, the first two words of verse 15, and let. Do you see that? And let. God's not going to force your heart to be peaceful. He's going to give you the gift of peace. Is that right? And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And then he says this, to the which also you are called. So anyone who's saved, if you've placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your eternal life, you're not trusting your baptism. You're not trusting your good works. You're not trusting the fact that mama and daddy were church members. If you're only trusting what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and you've said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Please save me and forgive me. If you've done that, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Bible says that you're the temple of God, that you have the Holy Spirit in you. Is that right? Is that what the Bible says? Well, then you can have the peace of God ruling in your hearts, and you're called to do that. So if you're here today and, you have a, and you're saved, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you know heaven is your home, and you have a heart of turmoil, I'm calling you this morning to peace. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts.
Don't let anxiety rule in your heart. Don't let fear rule in your heart. Don't let anger rule in your heart. Don't let bitterness rule in your heart. Don't let envy and lust and desire and want rule in your heart. Peace. Where does that peace come from? That peace comes because Jesus Christ died on the cross. And that war that you are experiencing with the God of the world, that enmity, that's the word the Bible uses, that hostility, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, if you'll receive Him as your Savior, is He's removed it so that you can have peace. The Bible says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. You're not going to find peace on Thanksgiving. It's not meat and drink, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Let that rule in your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts. Verse 15 again, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body. What does that mean, in one body? 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Whose body? Jesus Christ. So when a person gets saved, here's what happens. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're placed in Jesus. You're in Him. You're safe. You're safe. Your eternity is as sure as Jesus Christ's is. Is that awesome? So then what's the result of that? And be thankful. See, the reason it's hard for some of us to be thankful is because we don't have peace. Now, if you're a Christian, you have the peace. You just need to let it rule. If you're not saved, if you're trusting in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, the reason you can't have peace is because it only comes from Jesus Christ. It only comes from Him. You cannot know it or recognize it. You can't experience it until you know who Jesus Christ is. You know, you've seen it. It's no Jesus, N-O, Jesus, N-O, peace. Then K-N-O-W, Jesus, K-N-O-W, peace. The only way you can know peace is to know Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Then an attitude of entitlement is an effective impediment to gratitude. We are impacted, affected by interaction with the world. From inventions that give us comfort in this world to the young soldiers who give their lives in the battlefields to protect our livelihoods, an unobstructed view of our lives reveals the fact that we all owe debts that we can never repay. We will never begin to worship God until we recognize that we are bankrupt debtors. An attitude of gratitude is an indispensable impetus to worship. And when we understand this attitude of gratitude, we understand the absolute necessity of cleansing. How horrible it would be to be filled with gratitude and have no one to whom to say thank you. Christians have someone to say thank you to. Jesus Christ. You know that song, I think it was Andre Crouch wrote it, How Can I Say Thanks? How can I say thanks? To God be the glory. 
This is from Albert Moeller. He said, Professor Aronson deserves credit for acknowledging the problem, the problem of expressing gratitude without reference to God. His proposal sounds much like the gushing expression of the late Carl Sagan's embrace of a cold and accidental cosmos. His article, talking about Aronson, also performs the helpful service of demonstrating how the Christian view of life is so utterly different than that of the atheist. Dr. Aronson reminds us that the one key and essential component of the Christian worldview is gratitude to God. The inevitable conflict, what James Orr called the antagonism between the Christian view of the world and the secular view comes down to gratitude as much as anything else. You see, the simple fact is that Jesus Christ understood the human condition and understands it today. And He calls you to, number one, come and kneel before the cross of Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I accept Your forgiveness and Your blood. And then walk over to the empty tomb and see that that one who died for you rose from the dead. He's God and He ever lives to make intercession for you. That's the God that we serve. If you're a Christian today, if you're saved, you've placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for your eternal life, let the peace of God rule in your hearts so that you can be thankful. A sense of entitlement is the greatest impediment to a heart of gratitude. Today, I'm grateful. If I'm going to be grateful tomorrow, I'm going to have to let the peace of God rule in my heart. Realizing that the only thing I deserve is hell. Everything else is the grace of God. And that causes me to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father.